0: Uh, G'day everyone, I'm Pete. I hope you've you've had a chance to wrap up those prayers for Tim and Beck. We're going to read the Bible together now um, and it's Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to the end. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead.
1: Well, we've come to the end of our series uh, for term one in Luke 13 to 16. As we come to this last part of Luke 16, I'm going to pray that God will help us um, as we come to his word together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We acknowledge that it's living and active and we pray that you'll work in us now by your spirit and through your word that we might respond to you rightly. Help us by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In her book, 50 Facts That Should Change the World, Jessica Williams makes a statement about poverty to say that poverty should not happen. In fact, if 1% of the income of the richest countries was given towards those in poorer places, that not only could hunger be removed, but basic needs like health and education would be met. Uh, The death of many children would be avoided and even pandemics could be brought under control. Her argument is that uh, so often it's far less than 1% that's given. And the truth is that 1% of the richest people in the world today have as much wealth as the poorest 57%. And the result is that uh, one in five people today live on a dollar or less a day. And that means that over 800 million people, one in five of the world's population, go hungry each day. Now, The result of that is that 18 million people die of hunger-related diseases each year. And incredibly, this is not because of food shortages. Our world is producing enough food to feed all the inhabitants. It's just that it's not evenly distributed. So what does God think about all of this? Are we responsible in some way? Or is this something that we can blame on governments who don't give enough foreign aid to those in need? Will God judge our attitudes and our generosity towards the poor? In the first part of Luke 16, which we concluded uh, last week, Jesus said that a person cannot serve both God and money. And Christ's reply after the Pharisees sneered at him for saying so was this, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And then almost immediately following that statement, Christ tells this parable about the rich man and Lazarus from verse 19, which we're going to consider today. And the big question that this passage raises is, why do our earthly actions affect our eternal destiny? How do our choices in this life affect our next life? Why do our earthly actions affect our eternal destiny? The first answer to that question is because God observes our actions. God observes all of our actions. Notice the description in Christ's story of the earthly experience and actions of the rich man and Lazarus, verses 19 to 21. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus portrays the different circumstances of the rich man and the beggar in the most graphic of terms. Uh, The rich man is dressed in purple and fine linen. Uh, That is clothing of royalty. The inference here is that this man is living like a king. And the next phrase um, reinforces that, lived in luxury. Uh, That phrase is meant to convey feasting every day, opulence all around him. From a worldly point of view, this man had every creature comfort that could be imagined. And then in stark contrast, we have the beggar who is laying at the rich man's gate. He's empty-handed. He's longing even for the crumbs that might fall From the heavily laden table of this rich man. And yet he receives nothing from him. His poverty left him hungry and sick. His body is covered with sores or literally it's ulcerated. And this condition is quite painful. And we have the detail too of the dogs licking his sores. Which is meant to reinforce that he's just so weak that he's powerless even to fend for himself. Now, I had the opportunity to visit the United States uh, at the end of last year with my family. and One of the things that struck us on our time away was the level of homelessness, particularly in California. Uh, we found out, as we saw so many homeless people on the streets in Los Angeles and San Francisco in particular, um, that authorities in other states would even send people that were homeless in their jurisdiction on one-way tickets to California where the weather was better over winter and where they might survive. Whether that's an urban myth or not, there were certainly a lot more people in L.A. and in San Fran who were on the street. But what we saw also in those places was that rich hotels or fancier restaurants had doormen and they would keep any homeless people away, stop them begging as people came in and out. But if it was a more basic fast food um, restaurant, then uh, there was no such protection and people were lined up around the doors of such places. You could not enter without being asked for money by passing by those who were homeless. You literally saw them everywhere you went. It was confronting. And I imagine it was confronting for the rich man to exit his gate every time he went out and to see the beggar right there before him. Perhaps it was that he literally had to step over him every time he went forth. Now, the rich man in this parable is an example of a lover of money, just like the Pharisees were in verse 14 of last week's passage. This unnamed rich man has every opportunity to use the resources that God has blessed him with to benefit others. But he spent his wealth on himself. He spared none of it for the beggar at his gate. He ignored him. He clung tightly to the last moment of his life, to his wealth, to his God of money until the bitter end. You know, there's a story of an acquaintance of Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist pastor of the 19th century, a man named John Leafchild, who was also a pastor. And he spoke about uh, a person who had attended his church, was on the fringes of things, And this man eventually came to the point where he was dying in his bed at home and he went to visit him, to console him. And as he shared with this man, prayed with him, he found that the man was unwilling to take his hand while he prayed with him. And the man muttered something about, oh, you know, he was not worthy. He hadn't done the right thing in his life. He'd never supported uh, the Christian faith with what he had. And he then requested the minister tell him what he thought his outcome would be at the end of his life. Well, Leafchild simply called him to repent, to relinquish all further thoughts of a worldly nature, to trust in Jesus for his pardon, to not be holding on to his wealth that had been such an important thing to the man. And after he explained the gospel to him, he found that the man looked back at him with great disappointment. And he asked why he looked so downcast, and he was told to his astonishment and horror uh, that the man simply could not give up his things. Indeed, at that very moment, the reason that he could not take his hand was that it was clenched around the key to his special box with all his treasures, that he could not let go of that key of his cabinet in case someone should take away the things that were most valuable to him. And Leif Child was just distressed how this man should quit this world with his fingers stiffened around the key to his treasure. See, the first section of the parable is a reminder that God observes all of our earthly actions. He watches everything we do. Hebrews 4 verse 13 states, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account and it's not just that God sees our actions even he knows our motives he knows our heart as we saw at the start this was what Jesus said to the Pharisees in verse 15 in the conclusion to last week's passage And that brings me to a second answer to our question of why our earthly actions affect our eternal destiny It's not only because, firstly, God observes our actions, but secondly, because God judges them after our death. God judges us after our death. Notice again what is stated in verses 22 to 24. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. And so he called out, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, while it might have seemed that the rich man was blessed by God and Lazarus was somehow cursed because of the pitiful state he found himself in in his earthly life, the true reality is revealed at the point of death. And it's a dramatic reversal here. Uh, The beggar is carried to Abraham's side by angels, while there is no angelic escort for the rich man. Indeed, in contrast, the rich man enters Hades, the realm of the dead. And there he is in pain or torment. And in desperation, he begs for help, for a drop of moisture even, to cool his parched tongue. What we have to see here too is that the agony that the rich man now experienced far exceeded the misery that Lazarus faced in his earthly life. and In contrast, the bliss that Lazarus enjoyed far exceeded the pleasure that the rich man had ever had on earth. Their roles are not only reversed, but their situations are intensified. Now, this reversal would have been shocking to the Pharisees listening in to Jesus' teaching here. It would have been shocking to Christ's own disciples because the assumption of Christ's contemporaries was that if you were rich, it was clearly God's blessing. And if you were not, as Lazarus had not been, well, then surely he was just suffering what he deserved. But here is Lazarus in heaven and the rich man is in hell. And now it's too late, too, for the rich man to change his final state. And so he has a second appeal in verses 27 and 28. He stops thinking about himself for a moment and then thinks about his family and requests that Abraham might send Lazarus to warn his family, that he might go to his five brothers and tell them about the torment, that they might change. If they saw a raised Lazarus, then perhaps they would respond and that way not suffer the same eternal fate as him. Well, Why does he request that? Presumably because his brothers lived exactly the same way he did. That they would ignore Lazarus and anyone like him. That they too trusted in their possessions rather than God. That they found their security, their comfort in their possessions. And they looked down on those who had nothing. Rather than show any compassion or practical help towards them. You know, there was a bishop in the 17th century named Ezekiel Hopkins. And he once wrote, How foolish to account yourself better than another because your trash hill is a little bigger. These things are not to be reckoned in the value and worth of an individual. They're all outside of you and they concern you no more than fine clothes affect the health or strength of the body. It's wealth indeed that makes all the noise and bustle in this world. It gathers all the respect and honor to itself. The ignorant vulgar whose eyes are dazzled with pomp pay it a stupid and astonished reverence. Yet know this, it is only your lands and your income which they venerate. It is not you. See, wealth is often seen as the measure of success in this life. But it's not. It's a passing mist which God gives and can take away. So keep a close watch on what you are honouring. Don't be drawn into the greatest disease of the 21st century. As terrifying as COVID-19 is, the great danger for Christians in Australia, for all people in Australia, a disease which we're not immune to is rampant materialism. If only we could inoculate ourselves against that. If only we would place less value on things and more value on people and be rich towards God. That brings me to a third and final answer to this question. This question of why our earthly actions affect our eternal destiny. And that's because God's judgments are fair and final. Because God's judgments are Are fair and final. Not only does he judge, as we saw in point two, but there's no reversing it, and there's no claim, or can there ever be, that God is not absolutely fair in his assessment of a human's life. Notice what is stated in verses 25 and 26. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. See, in these two verses, the fairness and finality of judgment is explained. It's fair in verse 25, is the inference, because... It's based on what took place in a person's life, what unfolded in the rich man's life and Lazarus' earthly life. It's also final in verse 26 because God has placed a great chasm between heaven and hell and so there's no way to cross over. The hearer of the parable now learns the lesson that the rich man had learned at the end of his life, that after death there is no opportunity to change our condition. To change our final destiny. But perhaps at this point in Christ's parable, you're a bit thrown by this whole line of reasoning that he's putting forward. I mean, is Jesus saying in all of this that a person who fails to give money to a beggar is going to hell and that every poor person will automatically go to heaven? Well, no, he's not saying that. What he is saying is an important principle that runs throughout Scripture. What he is saying is that we will be judged by God on the basis of our life, on the basis of our works. This is a principle that runs throughout Scripture. For example, in the book of Romans, which is rightly viewed as the most extensive explanation of the gospel of grace, we have in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, this statement God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now that phrase is probably a quote from Psalm 62, verse 12, but it's also in Proverbs 24, verse 12. It's also in Hosea and Jeremiah. Jesus repeated the same principle in Matthew 16, verse 27, as Paul did elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. It's a big theme at the final judgment picture, in the book of Revelation as well, in Revelation 20 and 22. It's the principle of exact retribution. That's the foundation of true justice. Now, we can initially be confused by this because we can think that somehow that runs counter to the gospel, as if Jesus is saying that suddenly it's all about good works in the end. No, he's not saying that. Salvation is all of grace, is by faith alone, but judgment is on the basis of works. The day of judgment will bring to account everything that has ever been said or done or have been failed to be said or done. And the problem is at that point is that everyone will fall short of God's perfect standard. That's what Romans 3.23 tells us. We all fall short of God's perfection. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that not everyone will be condemned on that great day of judgment. Though none of us will match up perfectly to what God has called us to do, those who have placed their trust in Jesus have their debt paid for. It's been atoned for through his death on the cross where he bore the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And then through his resurrection as he rose on the third day, overcoming death the punishment for sin, and demonstrating his lordship. It is Christ's death and resurrection that wins us forgiveness. And once a person has been saved by grace, then any works that they do subsequently are prompted by this faith. And they are viewed by God as good works. So what are we to make of the final three verses where the rich man's request for Lazarus to visit his brothers is just ruled out? Well, again, it points to the fairness of God's judgment as he has given us his word. It's been given to all people so that we should know how to live. Have a look again at verses 29 to 31. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. See, here we have at the end of the passage, the sufficiency of God's word for all people. You know, Moses and the prophets is a catch-all phrase that refers to all of the Old Testament. Moses representing the law, the first five books, the prophets, the rest of the scriptures in the Old Testament. And the implication is that the scriptures are the greatest authority and therefore should bring the greatest conviction for a person. If a person's heart is so insensitive that they will not hear God's voice as he speaks to them in scripture, why will they listen to the testimony of any other person, even if they were miraculously to be raised from the dead? Now there's a great irony as this parable finishes because it's jesus who is telling us the parable and of course shortly he is going to lay down his life and then take it up again as he's raised on the third day and of course the pharisees who are listening in at this moment and many of his other opponents will reject jesus as the messiah they will reject the truth of the resurrection indeed they will work against the resurrection account even getting out Well, you and I have the privilege. We have the privilege of having the whole of God's Word in our language freely available. I mean, the truth is that there are more commentaries, more Bible teachers, more Bible study aids in this world than there has been at any point in history. How faithfully are we responding to God's grace if we have understood salvation by faith in Christ alone? Are we living faithfully in all areas of our life, including with the use of our money, including our generosity towards the poor? Now, it's not just about this area of money. Jesus is picking on it because it is the big problem for the Pharisees that are listening in at this point. But it relates to every area of your life. And even with the issue of money, you could give your money away and still have the wrong motive. You could give money away to impress others. You could give it thinking that you were somehow winning favor with God when you cannot. No, it's about the lordship of Jesus. Every area of our life has to come under his rule if we've come to place our trust in him as king. You know, the famous Romanian pastor and writer uh, Richard Wormbrand, with his book Tortured for Christ... Um, Suffered terribly at the hands of the communists, um, jailed for over 14 years, and tortured for much of that. When he was eventually released and had his freedom, he would speak at various places. And he writes about speaking at a large gathering in Norway in the 1970s that was called for the special purpose of raising money to be able to send Bibles into the Ukraine, And he told the story as he spoke of Nikolai Mara, a Soviet Christian who had been tortured for his faith in Jesus. He spoke about how his tongue had eventually been cut out and his eyes gouged out. And he ended by saying, please don't be quick to give tonight. Some will believe so devoutly that the Bible you donate is the word of God that they will be ready to endure prison, endure torture, even death for sharing it. The Bible you donate might inspire someone to become a Nikolai Mara. You will answer to God if you've given this money and your own life does not show that you yourself obey God's word. If you do not lead a life of intimacy with Jesus, following him on the way of the cross, of self-sacrifice, if you do not intend to commit yourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus, it's best you don't give. Well, that is a thought that is echoed throughout Scripture. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. And Jesus died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Even believers will have to give an account of their life before God. And the undeserved salvation that we have received through faith in the Lord Jesus' atoning work should spur us on to live for him in every aspect of our lives, to obey his word, Let's not think that we can live double lives, not be like the Pharisees who thought they could love money and also be true servants of God. Rather, let's respond to the grace God has shown us in Christ by realizing that our earthly actions now are important, that our daily lives now are to be called to honor Jesus, not to dishonor him may we live in the light of eternity for christ's sake will you pray with me our heavenly father we acknowledge that we find the issue of money and generosity difficult but indeed we find the issue of the lordship of christ difficult in so many areas of our lives for we are sinners and we need your help We need your Spirit to continue to conform us to the likeness of your Son. But help us to be under no illusions that we cannot put other things as idols before you and still claim to honour Christ. Help us to see that if Christ is King, that he rules over every area, including our wallets. Lord, help us this week Indeed, throughout this year, to be those who clearly acknowledge Christ in every facet of our lives. Help us to live for him with your help, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have come to the end of our series in Luke 13 to 16. And as a result, we've asked some people to reflect on what they have learnt through these past nine weeks. And so we're going to see... A little summary of that now as people share their thoughts on how God has challenged them over these past couple of months.